Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Don't forget that forward slash chat. Our Ravinder won't be happy with me. (laughs) Do have a great chat room. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a lovely chat room, and we have some great conversation. I'd really like it if you could join me, too. You know, if you have the ability to jump onto a computer and just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat, say hello, join in the conversation, or just listen as everyone else chats away. Uh, do come join us, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to address the subject of values. One of the more interesting areas of human research has to do with our emotions, and there is a heuristic to them. A heuristic is a rule or method that shortcuts a necessity to reason or think about a decision. If you think of it this way, then when our emotions arise, they are reflecting a value. Let me flesh that out some. For years I have taught that our stream of consciousness is a mirror on our true beliefs. When we say something to ourselves like, I'm going to really succeed, what do we hear back from our self-talk? Does our stream of consciousness assure us that we're right? Or does it mitigate and even deny our affirmation? Do we hear arguments, something like, well, maybe to some degree, or who are you kidding? When did you ever succeed at anything? In other words, When we tell ourselves the things we want to believe, when we use all those affirmations designed to encourage and bolster our efforts, does our subconscious mind agree with what our conscious mind is asserting? Very often, for many, the answer is a big no. Deep inside our mind may be this subconscious belief that we're not deserving, worthy, capable, powerful enough, and so forth. And it is what our subconscious believes that will dictate our success or failure. Okay, now, think back to your emotions. When you use an affirmation, what emotion is triggered? Do you feel uneasy? If so, your emotional heuristic is telling you something. This is also true of your likes, dislikes, and so forth. For example, think of a situation where you felt uncomfortable. Perhaps it was with a person or something that had been said. In these instances, your gut feeling, your emotion, is informing you of a value, one of your values. When you think of principles like morality, how do you feel? When you think of politicians, how do you feel? These feelings, emotions, are expressing your inner belief, your values. This instant feeling is your emotional heuristic informing you without reason of your subconscious belief. Emotions are very valuable, but not as a total substitute for rationality. As I have argued in the past, we need them both. That said, our emotions can steer us wrong and lead us into real trouble. Our so-called gut feelings can and often do betray us. Victims of violent crime often report that they never saw the attack coming. It's often the one we trust who betrays us most. Emotions predispose our expectations. If we expect someone to say something negative, and then we don't quite hear what they say but believe they are speaking about us, we will think the worst. We are likely to respond to them in our next direct exchange according to our expectation. In other words, our emotion has set up our expectation And that is confirmed by our so-called perception, despite the fact that our perception is skewed and in error. 
perhaps we should be questioning the underlying heuristic, that non-thinking shortcut that informs us in a manner that can undermine our own well-being. It's easy to see that our expectations based on our emotional heuristic could get us in trouble. There is no better time to be rational than when emotions are encouraging irrational behavior. Just as with your stream of consciousness, you can engineer your own emotional heuristics. That is, you can consciously decide to flush out the images that evoke unwanted emotion and rewrite their anchoring, thereby replacing unwanted feelings with those you would consciously choose. Changing your feelings may not change the outside world, but it certainly makes living in it much more enjoyable and to some extent much safer. My thoughts anyway. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, you've covered loads of areas in there. You know, I would say the most important thing would be to stop and think once again about whatever it is that you're thinking about. So those automatic responses that can take control of your life, well, you have a chance to, you know, adjust them if you think, if you just take a few more seconds to think it through again. And that's the basis of all of your work. I mean, that's, you know, the inner talk programs are all about changing your self-talk so that you take charge of the programming that goes on in the subconscious mind. And yeah, when your inner goals are in line with your outer goals, then success is so much easier. We often think of self-talk as a linear model of the brain, you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, like how we talk to ourselves. But but the point of this is really it isn't just how we're talking to ourselves. It is this, this gut reaction. Mm-hmm. It is this emotion, this, this, this feeling. And the feeling predisposes our thinking. And so we really do have to stop and remeasure those heuristics if we're going to escape the circularity of just perceiving the same falsehoods we've been perceiving in the past. Absolutely. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our guest was John Truman Wolf, and we discussed his book, The Coming Financial Crisis. Andy wrote, loved your show with Mr. Wolf. I bought his book, and wow, I think everyone should read this one. The fact that banks can take our money and we're just unsecured creditors is terrifying. And worse yet, the government is in on it. Beth wrote, The Great Illusion, We Believe the Government is Here to Take Care of Us. Sharon wrote, The FDIC, I Thought They Were Supposed to Protect Their Depositors. Richard wrote, I'm reading, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. Very, very interesting what the central banks have done and can do. There are definitely things that can be done if we get some decent politicians. Moving on, Angela wrote, Hi, Eldon. I could tell you that I have had many changes in my life, thanks to your audios and books, but it would be much too much to write, so I'll just say thank you. Deborah wrote, your newsletters are awesome. Okay, for all of you out there, if you do not currently receive our free newsletter, be sure to register to get your own copy by going to eldentaylor.com. And Stephen wrote, I will never be able to congratulate you enough for Intertalk System you created. Whenever I need to improve on something, your wife, Ravinder, knows what to recommend, and magic happens. When I need to overcome something, the same thing happens. I consider myself fortunate to have learned about InterTalk. Now, I'll just bet you like that one, Ravinder, and you should, because you always make yourself available to our customers and really take the time to assist them. I do. I I enjoy that. I enjoy talking to customers. I enjoy hearing the progress, you know, when customers first come in and they've got this problem or that problem. And then over the years, you know, they've overcome the initial problems, but then they're exploring the how high is up paradigm, which is my best. And that's what I think, you know, life is all about. It's about constantly improving and creating the person that you want to be. You actually had a post on your Facebook page. You'd actually created one of your your own quotes, a a little poster that was all about um, creating the person that you want to be. And I'm a real strong believer in that. And I love talking to customers and watching them progress too. So yeah, if you have questions about InnerTalk, feel free to call. I answer the phones whenever I can, but if I don't answer them, you can always ask for me too. (laughs) Okay, now, 
Not not during the radio show, however, not during the live broadcast. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Ego Therapy and the Two Voices Within with Dr. Nicholas Martin. Dr. Nick Martin is a licensed psychologist, social worker, and certified school psychologist who has worked in clinical, university, public school, and private practice settings as a therapist, diagnostician, educator, and consultant for 35 years. During his professional work, he has directed thousands of psychotherapy sessions, psychological evaluations, and classroom meetings, all of which have led him to conclude that the ego is of paramount importance in fully understanding our human behaviors and choices. He is the author of Ego Therapy, A Method for Healing Your Whole Self, and the co-author, along with his wife of 38 years, Reverend Dr. Linda M. Martin, of Ego Spiritualism and the Two Voices Within. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Nicholas Martin. Hi, Eldon, and hi, Ravinder. How are you doing? Glad to have you here. That's how we're doing. Uh, listen, let's let's get some definitions out of the way first thing, because there's a lot of, I think, disinformation, misinformation about the ego. As you know, Freud gave the world the construct we refer to as ego. And according to him, the ego plays a significant role necessary to the health of our social order as well as the individual by finding socially acceptable means or equilibrium, if you will, between the demands of the superego and the id. Now, many today treat the ego as though it were a culprit, some evil force that undermines our potential. So how are you using the word ego, Dr. Martin? Okay. Uh, Over the years of my work with thousands of people, they have been my teachers and have taught me as much as, as any book has ever taught me about what ego is and how it's manifested. And I think when I'm talking about it as fundamentally an energy, a human energy that is at work in our lives that is primarily geared to helping us to survive, both in the uh, daily sense in terms of our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions, even our physiology, but also in the mortal sense. So fundamentally, uh, the ego is an energy, and it has actually a positive purpose, which is to help us to survive. Unfortunately, when this ego energy becomes imbalanced over time uh, through life events or circumstances or relationships, it often becomes what we refer to as imbalanced, meaning that there's too much or too little we call ego power, too much or too little vulnerability, too much or too little flexibility. And often that leads us into distress or suffering in many areas of life, whether it's about uh, the nature of our self-esteem, our ability to like and love ourselves as we are, love ourselves unconditionally, uh, our ability to form close relationships and uh, with our partner, our spouses, our children, our parents, and so on. And many other very important areas of life are affected. So the, I wouldn't say the definition of the, the word at this point, I think, is it's an energy. And it's an, it's an important energy. It's a pervasive energy. Uh, that's at work in our lives, but oftentimes we don't recognize it, how it's doing that. And so the work that I um, I've been doing is about trying to unearth that to make it a little more uh, or a lot more uh, apparent as to exactly how that's going on in people's lives uh, using what I call the mirrors of the 10 key life areas, uh, some of which I just mentioned earlier. Okay, so now, you know, I'm returning to the construct of Eagle for a moment here. For all intent and purposes, it manifests it through it manifests itself often through mechanisms that have been defined as unconscious. And you know, functional magnetic resonance imaging research has confirmed the work of Benjamin Libet uh, that essentially informs us that uh, you know these functions, these actions, these mechanisms, all this unconscious stuff. Uh, is is actually making our decisions. In fact, the latest fMRI work says shows us six seconds before you know consciously what you're going to choose to do, 
your unconscious has made the decision. So if indeed that's the instance, how do we begin to work with the ego? How do we begin to work with this energy? Or do you even accept this model uh, which seems to prohibit what we think of as free will, at least in the sense that we think of it? I believe we are able to work with it and we are able to heal it. But in order to do that, we have to have a better grasp of the construct of the, uh, and how it's at work in our lives. Uh, there, there is a lot of faulty information, I believe, out there that's been out there for long, for long periods of time. And if we don't understand what it is and what it's not, uh, we won't move very far as far as being able to tune into what that energy is as it is being lived by ourselves and being able to heal it. So uh, I think that we can, through our use of what we call me- ego medicine, have the opportunity to better understand it. For example, the perception of ego in many people's minds is that it's only negative. I think you might have said something like that earlier. Well, right. it is It is unhealthy, and it is negative, and it causes suffering in ways that uh, have been mentioned over the years when it's imbalanced. However, when we are able to work with it and whenever it's healed and it's in a balanced place, uh, we can be able to work with it in ways that actually allow us to experience healthy self-esteem, where we are able to, to uh, uh, value ourselves and others equally, not imbalanced, where when people's ego energy is imbalanced and it's too low, they often put people above themselves. And, or when there are people who have too much self-esteem, they often put others much lower than they are. And so it's just understanding it better and, and what it is and what it's not. Uh, a lot of times there has been an effort to suggest that this ego energy has like an intentional quality uh, and that it has an intellectual quality, but neither of those are true. Uh, the ego has no awareness of itself. It has no awareness of you. It has no awareness of God. It is an energy, and it's an energy that's rooted in our survival. We can develop an awareness of it, though it cannot develop an awareness of itself, there's also this sense of it having an intentionality, that it's sort of out to get us or it's out to get God. I, I think the acronym or ego being used as e, edging God out. Edging God out, right. That's, that we, that's not happening. The ego doesn't even know who God is. Ego has no awareness because it doesn't have an intellect. Its very basic function is about our survival. And it works through what we describe as the ego space or the ego mind to fashion the thoughts, the beliefs, the values, the prejudices, the illusions and delusions that we carry around with us as we go through our lives that ultimately shape the ego self, the behaviors and emotions and thoughts and physiology that we carry into the world uh, as we go through those 10 key life areas that we refer to in our books, whether it's about our ability to form close relationships in healthy ways, our ability to achieve, our ability to deal with change, conflict, stressors, all of those parts of life are fundamentally influenced by just the energy that we are. And the more we understand the energy, the closer we can be in a place of healing it. Just to give you an example, when you look at the cell phone that you have or I have, or smartphone, although it's smarter than me, I think, sometimes, and you look at the technology that was existent in the 70s that would have been utilized to make it do what it does today, you would have needed a whole building. Now, what's transpired over the last 30 to 40 years is that we've harnessed that energy more effectively. We've come to understand it better. We have better components, and they're more efficient, and as a result, all of the incredible, wonderful things that we can do with a smartphone are possible because we came to understand the energy. And that seems to be the case with lots of other areas of life. The more we understand the energy that's at work, the closer we are to working with it and healing it where necessary. When we don't understand the energy, we're kind of at a loss. And I just say one thing. I think that this whole idea of ego and the energy that ego is this is something that's been, from the time of Buddha 3,000 years ago, from the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, from the time of Muhammad 1,300 years ago, and even more recently. They were all recognizing the issues that are existing in our humanity in regards to this egoic energy, though they didn't have the word, therefore, to refer to it. But 
it is fundamentally important, and that's what's been shared and shown to me by these experiences over 30 years. So we need to, we can't, we still have the free will to work with it. Uh, There is, to to heal it and to make it, to help it become, as I think Ravindra said earlier about, one of the gifts, uh, great divine gifts we have is the ability to create the life in which we are living. And we use that egoic energy in the human part of this in order to be able to do that. I think what most people see is they see the mechanisms uh, like compensation uh, that ego deals with. And so you feel insecure, you feel threatened, you compensate, and you're perhaps overly aggressive. And now ego gets the blame for that as opposed to recognizing that this is a manifestation of an underlying security which is tied to the mechanism compensation. So now, if I've understood you correctly, then let me add this to it. Freud was an atheist. Indeed, you know, his quote is often used by other atheists. Religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. So you, as a school psychologist, uh, where we have separation of church and state, found a place that you would integrate spirituality into these inner voices so if you model this you have the ego the superego the id i assume you still deal with those struggles as an energy struggle at least i haven't heard you say otherwise where does the spiritual voice come in well i think something you said earlier about freud being an atheist one of the questions that we cover this in the book are you an atheist because of your religious views as opposed to spirituality a lot of religion has put forth a lot of ideas. In fact, I did a blog on this not too long ago, in which uh, I, it was entitled uh, "Non-Religious Spiritually Connected." Oftentimes, we run together the concept of religion and spirituality, when many times they are quite different. Now, religion is often a bridge to our spirituality, and so I could understand. I think even uh, Einstein uh, began to abandon the notion of religion after a point in time, because I think he began to sense that this wasn't comporting to what he was beginning to understand about the magnificence of our universe. And what was at work, uh, I think that it's very possible that that we can unify the idea of uh, creationism and, and evolutionism. They both can work together when you have this understanding of the humanity at work as well as the divinity at work. Uh, so I, I'm not sure I'm getting to the question that you had, but from the vantage point of what we're talking about in the work, uh, we talk about ego-spiritualism as a consciousness, because we're saying that it requires two awakening for people, that the traditional view of our, 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 our spirituality is suggested that we can just awaken from our spiritual unconsciousness, possibly through religion, to become spiritually conscious. But that's not what's happening for a lot of people, and it isn't necessary for them to become necessarily religiously connected to do that. But what does need to happen for many people, if they're wrestling with ego imbalance, is to awaken egoically and humanly. Now, some of the people out there might be saying, well, I'm awake, uh, I, I, I know what I'm hearing, and I know what I'm seeing, and I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm thinking, so what do you mean by I'm not awake? That is sensory awareness, that's sensory and even being mentally awake, but that doesn't mean you're egoically awake. Now, other persons out there might say, well, you know, I know myself to be a good person, I know myself to be an intelligent person, I know myself to be a well-meaning person, so what you have to say really doesn't have anything for me. And I would just respond by lots of good, well-meaning, intelligent people do lots of things with their behavior, with their feelings, their thinking, and so on, that are less than what they are. They lead to a lesser version of themselves. So it had nothing to do with being intelligent. It had nothing to do with being well-meaning. It had nothing to do with a good person. It had a lot to do with how that egoic unconsciousness is going on, and particularly when it's imbalanced, whether it's power issues, some of them we see as some of the political candidates out there, 
whether it's flexibility issues or whether it's vulnerability issues, of which they are not aware of, that have taken over their lives and led to failing in places like self-esteem or achievement or change or dealing with stressors or knowing genuine happiness. So the work that we're talking about is really going after both sides of the equation. One of the things I learned that even though we may heal ourselves humanly and bring our ego into a healthy place, that wasn't the whole story, that you still needed to be able to access the, the, uh, our divine energy that's available to us and work with that in addition to working with a healthier version of yourself in the human sense. All right, we have a hard break coming up. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to flesh that out a little more. Why the divine? Why is it important that we incorporate this idea of divinity? Uh, I happen to agree with you, but I want you to explain that to our audience. We're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Martin about his work and books, The Two Voices Within, Eagle Spiritualism and Eagle Therapy. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Nicholas Martin about his work in books, The Two Voices Within, Ego Therapy and Ego Spiritualism. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real significance to them. Music psychology is a brand new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, dealing with human aptitude, skill, intelligence, personality, social behavior, creativity, and so forth. So on that, we just played some of Brand New Day by Sting. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Dr. Martin, and how does it instruct us about who you are? 
I think the title of the song, for the most part, says what we're talking about is the brand new day is the understanding that there is a need and opportunity for us to open up to a consciousness we refer to as ego spiritualism, said that earlier. And it's the idea that if we can awaken on both the human side of things and the spiritual side, as well as within the spiritual side of things, that real change can really take place. That the traditional message of awakening has primarily stressed spiritual awakening. Uh, and that message, though a beautiful message, hasn't been enough to change what's been going on in our world. Uh, as One of the lines in our book is, ego is the true weapon of mass destruction. We haven't come to terms with it. As I said earlier, we're still wrestling with that issue, they, an issue uh, uh, pertaining to our humanity that I think that Buddha and Christ, Jesus Christ, and, and uh, Muhammad were saying, and even more recently to some degree, Tolley, Eckhart Tolley, and uh, Wayne Dyer was speaking to it. They, they, there's a thread there. And, but the, the, the concern is that that thread is all about spiritual awakening for the most part, and not enough about, it, it's not about dissolving, disowning, defeating our ego or our, ego, our egoic energy. People have shown me in their, with their lives that's not what's happening. And we're never going to get to either collective world peace or personal peace if we ignore this very profound energy and get a better handle on understanding it. So the song really is about the brand new day, is our opportunity to really awaken both on the human and the spiritual side of things as a complement to each other so that we can truly live the best version of ourselves. Okay, now, more than once, you called upon the Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus. And so, you know, we're talking about uh, an inner voice, a voice that's going to coach us and lead us towards spirituality. Problem is, if you or I had been raised in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, or the like, we may find ourselves listening to an inner voice encouraging us to carry out a form of Allah's will dedicated to removing the infidel, perhaps even through personal jihad. So what makes the inner voice any different? This this spiritual voice, what makes it any different than any form of self-talk that we may get as a byproduct of our enculturation uh, or the very nature of how we define spiritual? I think that the answer to the question has something to do with making a distinction, a very important distinction, between spiritual and religion. And people who would choose to harm their neighbor, who would act out in anger uh, or violently or destructively, the people who are populating ISIS, uh, there's definitely no spirituality going on there. It's all about a faulty interpretation rooted, I believe, in lower ego flexibility energy at work. I, I was listening to one of your previous programs. You talked about ignorant confusion. I said, that's it. You know, that's when people are unwilling or unable to see the difference between what they believe and what is really going on. It's true that, that they're closed-minded with that. Of course, they're not, what we're saying right here, right, what I'm saying, isn't going to resonate with them. But we need to understand why they're thinking like that, what's going on, and the egoic energy is really preventing them from having any true spiritual awakening, any true spiritual consciousness. The consciousness I'm referring to is an understanding that God is love, God is life, God is energy, and God is you. All of those parts that I was referring to, and the word love, or that's a word we use, humans created, but all of those aspects of of what we, I'm referring to as God, you can call it higher power or source, whatever. All of those predated the presence of our existence on this planet before there was ever a humanity or human consciousness. And so why we are talking about it in those terms is because they are what, what was here before we were here for eons forever, for whatever it would be in the distant past as well into the future. Uh, and the, the core of, again, is what it, what's going on is that faulty, faulty overlap between 
religiosity and spirituality that so many people, and, and, and it's the egoic energy, when it's in an imbalanced place, often foment, fosters that blur, that failure to make those distinctions that exist between the two. Uh, one of the uh, quotes in my book is by William James, religion is a monumental testament to human egotism. And it just refers to how much ego has, you know, religion has actually grabbed, uh, you know, egos grabbed onto religion and has often created dark, empty places where most of the violence and destructiveness that has been played out across mankind over the years have been connected to that faulty understanding of of God, of of the idea that, that God has uh, feels resentment or God punishes us or or God feels anger or wants revenge and that none of that is true that's an all an egoic construction rooted in a human's effort to try to understand God while not really understanding what was going on within themselves that was laying the foundation for those kinds of messages have nothing to do with the love, life, and energy that God is. Okay, so the devil's advocate would say a couple of things. First of all, then it's not appropriate uh, making this demarcation to be calling upon Buddha or Christ. Second of all, um, you know, Jesus cleared the temple of all the the merchants, uh, showing just a little bit of frustration at the very least most would say anger you know seek guru one of the ten gurus uh you know created uh for all intent and purposes led his warriors into war so when we look at these people and we say buddha and muhammad if i understand you correctly you're basically saying no set that aside i'm not talking about that even though i may have referenced it i'm talking about a different form of spirituality that for all intent and purposes, is outside of all that religion. Did I get that right? I'm not sure you, uh, that, that that would be the case. I don't want to set anything aside. I want to deal with it as much as I can and deal with it That's directly. why I said outside of, right. Yeah, because Buddha wasn't a religious, although he'd been turned into a religious figure, he was a consciousness teacher. Uh, he was That was what he was. He was a consciousness teacher. And, and the same thing with Jesus. He was a consciousness teacher. Uh he wasn't a Christian. They created a religion named after him. Uh, he was here to enlighten us about our humanity and our divinity. And uh, so I, I don't know if I want to. I don't want to avoid anything. I think it's important to really go straight at the issues and talk about them and see and reconcile perhaps what people may be thinking that may not be helping them, rather than to not deal with it. All right, well, then I'm going to pin you down a little more sure. talk. Great. <laughs> because Wonderful. in your book, Ego Therapy, you inform us that all our truths are relative truths, not absolute truths. And there are no absolute truths? I mean, Absol- the world no, no, is all about good. cultural relativity then? I mean, flesh that out for us. Great, great question. Absolutely wonderful question. The more we gain distance from healthy egoic energy when it's imbalanced, the more you begin to get a relative uh, psychological reality at work, where people's beliefs become far more indicative of where they are really at than anything like human truth. For example, I was looking at the Ten Commandments. They are probably one of the versions of human truth. You know, can people can, when people get closer to egoic balance, there's a lot of consensuality about. Like, yeah, it's not a great idea to kill people. You shouldn't be doing that. Or you shouldn't be stealing from people. Or you shouldn't be lying to people. Or you shouldn't be coveting their goods. You know, those are all parts of the list of the Ten Commandments. And I think they do speak to human truths that most consensually rational, good, well-meaning, intelligent person. So to the degree that they can be absolute, they are the closest or some of the closest reflections of an absolute human truth. The problem, not to say the problem is, but the issue often is, though, many people are, live at a great distance from that. Uh, and the more, like the racist, you know, or the sexist, or the uh, religious extremist, they get their, their really 
being affected by belief far more and relative belief than they are anything to do with truth. Uh, I, you know, your comments about ignorance and confusion, you know, there are people that, that want to, you know, who wanted to think the world was still flat or the earth was flat. There are some people who want to think, uh, you know, the climate change is really not happening. Uh, there are some who want to say, you know, Obama's really not born in this country. They, you know, but the more you get away from healthy egoic balance, the more you begin to think those kinds of things that have been clearly, you know, shown to be untrue. Okay, and, I, and I'm just not sure that I quite. I mean, so I think what you're I'm, I'm going to pin you down a little human- more. Cultural relativity. Is the idea that, you know, if you raise in a country like Pakistan and, um, you know, you buy a bride and she's 14 years old and she fails to please you and you cut her ears and nose off and cast her out to the stable, something that really happened. American doctors did rebuild this young lady's face. But if you do that, that's a part of the culture. That's accepted. That's that's appropriate. When she crawled home to her parents and her father refused to let her in the house, that's what he should have done as well. Now, my culture tells me that that is beneath the pale of what I can think of as disgusting and unacceptable. Again, my question, cultural relativity. Is there a value system at all that we can look to, even like, you know, life is sacred? Or, I mean, or or, or is there none? Is it all a matter of, well, ego energy says, and, you know, maybe you should or you shouldn't? Are, when that person does that within the confines of that religion, are they being the love, life, and energy God is within that treatment of another human being? The answer is no, they're not. So it does raise questions in regard to, you know, it, not, it isn't anything goes. But when most people are in a healthy place egoically, they often are able to understand that that kind of treatment doesn't isn't working. Uh, you know, that, that it, not working. It, it's inconsistent with their their divinity. It's inconsistent with being love, life, and energy. Uh, when another person is being treated as if they are less worthy, whether they that they are separated, that they are unequal, and so on. It, uh, so the, the most people when they think in the in the realm of, of ego is balanced involving the power, flexibility, and vulnerability, they will think that way. They won't just say, oh, yeah, that's cool, that's good, let's treat people like that. They actually do heart, that, that healthy humanity complementing their divinity. What, what I'm saying, there's a lot of people out there who are egoically imbalanced and at extreme levels. Yeah, right. And I guess the problem, you know, my background largely is coming out of criminalistics, and I've seen some, you know, and I mean, we all have read about some pretty horrific things. And uh, next week we have a, a, a former member of the BAU from the FBI coming on to talk to us about criminal profiling. Um yeah, and, and I guess my mind goes to, look, I like spiritual. I like the idea of love and light, and that's all there is. But, you know, there are these people that are so seriously unbalanced, and we need to do what we need to do to remove them from society. And sometimes that means that maybe we have to act in an unloving way, even if the higher purpose is indeed... Uh, to perpetrate more peace or or more love, how do how do you fit that into the scheme of your definition of spirituality? Eldon, I, I agree with you. There are people out there that our egoic energy will tell us this is a menace. They need to be dealt with. They need to be dealt with in the, you know whatever legal methods are needed or whatever in order to protect us in this current evolution of the world. We have a lot of potentially dangerous people. And so it's not, you know, we're striking that balance between our being the love, life, and energy with these people doesn't mean we don't deal with them. It doesn't mean we are not holding them accountable and imposing the restrictions or penalties that are necessary. And in some cases, that can even be a loving thing to do. 
uh, to actually prevent them from harming themselves or others. You know, one of the questions I had is I wonder how many people who, li- who are in prison, the percentage of people who are in prison who say to themselves, how the heck did I get here? What am I doing here? And what I mean by that is it's not that they question that they did the crime. They did the crime. They know they did the crime, and they're there to do the time. But that they had seen so many other positive versions of themselves when they weren't being that person that they were being when they committed their crime. And, and see that contrast between the person they had known themselves to be or at times was a better, healthier version, but the person who got themselves into that place was not. And there's, I think there's, it's a very challenging experience to be sitting in a locked-up place to know I'm not, that's not all of who I am, but that's why I'm here, and I have to pay my I, price. I, I've worked with inmates in prison system. You're in a youth offenders facility. A high percentage of them are asking that question. As you move from that to medium security, the percentage falls. By the time you get to, uh, you know, max, it's 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 even less. It's as though uh, the habituation of criminality is, uh, you know, addicting. If, if something let's let's do this. Re- What's that? I say, let's do this. Let's talk a little more about ego medicine because we haven't got to that. And, and, and I've got tons of questions here. We haven't got a lot of time. Unpack for us what you refer to as ego medicine. What is it? When and how do we use it? Okay. Ego medicine involves three important things. One is to have a better understanding of what ego and what ego isn't. And kind of spoke to that a little bit earlier about the notion that it can be healthy, that it can be balanced, it can be work with us as opposed to against us, that it doesn't have an intentionality or an intellect, and so on. And there are other things, but it's the foundation of making transformation take place in, in our lives with, the, with regard to this ego energy. So we have to, we're going to change something. We've got to know what it is. And once we have a better understanding of what it is, then the next part of it is being able to, the second part is important, which is being able to tune into your own specific egoic energy. Because this energy that people are is diverse. It's not generic. It's not all size fits one. So many people think that the energy is all about the power aspect, that, you know, big ego, small ego kinds of considerations. But it isn't just about that. It's about understanding what ego flexibility is and how I'm living it, ego vulnerability is and how I'm living it. And we spend lots of time in our book. You see the Ego Therapy book. There's probably about 400 pages of that book that are devoted to trying to provide examples for people to help understand what's going on in their mind that's being shaped by their ego energy that they're employing to live their lives but often to not a healthy place. So tuning into one's ego energy is the second part. And by the way, Ego Therapy is a self therapy book. You don't have to go anywhere to do it. You can work with yourself. You're the student, you're the teacher, and you're the subject. And then the third part of this ego medicine is being able to replace non-reality-based or ego-related non-reality-based thinking with ego-related reality-based thinking. And we give lots of examples of what this is, what's different, uh, or what the distinctions are between the two of those. For example, again, people with low ego flexibility often think that difference is deficient. Difference is deficient. So anything that's different from what I think is deficient. And so there's this intolerance of differentness that the world is about. And and they want and, and they look down upon people in situations. So if the person is really trying to heal, they need to work on understanding that difference isn't always deficient. It's just different, and different people have different ways of living effectively. Uh, and there's lots of examples, again, about what is the ego-related reality-based thinking that I need to work with and develop in my, in my life that will help me with transforming the egoic energy into a healthier place. So those three are ingredients all reflect what I refer to as ego medicine. I think one of the things that I enjoyed most about your book, uh, Dr. Martin, books, I guess, um, 
Well, I'm focusing on the two voices within, so maybe more of that particular book than the others, is is how you set up the dialogues between um, the way our ego talks to us and and the way spirit talks to us and the importance of of you know listening to both and and balancing and counterbalancing the information that we get. I'd like to go into that, but I'm afraid we're out of time, and we've got about one minute. I want to take that time to allow you to tell everybody about your website, about your workshops, about your books, where they can get them, etc. Please. Elder, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your show today. Uh, if people want to learn more, uh, we have two websites that people can visit. Uh, Egoandspirit.info is one I would pre- recommend. There's lots of description and discussion about ideas that we couldn't elaborate more fully upon uh, in, in this program in, in the amount of time involved. But I think that's a really helpful opportunity for you to, to get more and understand more about what we're putting forth here. And the other one is lindamartin.net. That's a website that my wife, Linda, who is a spiritual healer, uh, has been working and using and you can ask, access information from that particular website. Okay, and these are three. We, we we didn't even get into the tip of the iceberg on these three books. I want to tell you all, Ego Therapy, Ego Spiritualism, The Two Voices Within, uh, they are well worth the investment. I'm holding them in my hand right now, and, uh, you know, I suppose we could take at least four or five hours of radio time to discuss the three books. I want to thank you, Dr. Martin, for your willingness to share your work with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.